0: Acts chapter 7 verses 1 through 43 is what we'll be looking at um, this morning. There is a great deal of confusion in the South about what a believer is. And I think some of that has been the result of preaching a gospel that is not a biblical gospel What you have in the South, what I've often seen over and over again, is this idea that you can become a believer, but your life doesn't necessarily have to change. Uh, And what happens as a result of that is you have sort of these go to uh, words or phrases that we use about a person who has that spiritual condition. You might say, Well, oh, I know that they're prayed a sinner's prayer. But right now, they're just backslidden, and we just hope that they rededicate their life to Christ. Sadly, this language is foreign to Scripture, and I've even heard it said that, uh, I've heard sermons like this before. Well, if you don't know if you're a believer, instead of calling you to uh, even question that, or even instead of calling you to ask yourself, are you a believer, they say, I've heard these messages before where, Just try to think back to a time where you might have prayed a prayer and asked Jesus into your heart. And what's the problem with that? Well, the problem is, obviously, the Bible. That's a problem with that. But also a problem with that is if we believe that what it means to have a relationship with Christ is actually a relationship with Christ, it should look and feel and act like a relationship, something that is ongoing. And what... How silly that kind of statement is it 's like me saying, "Hey, for those of you who are married and if you don 't know if you 're married, um, try to think back to a time where your parents may have dropped like some crazy amount of number, figure like forty grand on an event where your pictures were taken and you wore a, uh, you dressed up, and maybe there 's a ring involved." Try to go find those pictures, and then remember whether or not you were married. And that's silly to be able to say that. How do you know if you were married? Well, men, this means if you're married, that means you should clean up after yourself. If you're married, that means the toilet seat it goes down after you use the facility. If you're married, that means you share a bank account. If you're married, that means you probably share debt. <laughs> If you're married, that means you share hopefully a bed. If they are married, you share in-laws because you share in all things, meaning your life before is different than your life now. Amen, men? Good, good. Ladies, make sure you take note of what your husband just did. If your life is not different Before than it is now, you have a long road ahead of you, and we need to talk for marriage counseling. And so I tell you that because a true believer means that your life has been changed by the gospel. It means that you are not the same as you were before. And so the question is, is there even a possibility that you could be a believer but outright reject The truth. And that's what we're going to explore in the text this morning. So let me bring you up to speed on what's happening. Acts chapter 6, we're told about this man named Stephen. Stephen, he was one of the first deacons in the church, is what we saw a couple of weeks ago as, as Eddie preached. And what he was doing was he was chosen out of one out of seven men to assist the apostles, the elders of the church, Peter and John, so that the gospel would be able to go Forward. But sadly, Stephen was chosen during a time in the church where persecution was pretty heavy. And ironically, the persecution that the church was facing was from religious leaders. It was from religious leaders of unbelieving Israelites who wanted to stay under the old system rather than submit their lives to Christ and embrace the gospel. And what I love about Stephen is what, he was not a guy who could keep his mouth shut. He was a man who uh, was passionate about the gospel. And for this reason, the, the Jews, the religious elite, they seized him and they accused him of blasphemy. They accused him of speaking against the temple. They accused him of speaking against the law. They accused him of speaking against the entire nation of Israel. But this did not intimidate Stephen. He was a man full of the Holy Spirit. And as chapter 6 says that they could not speak against the wisdom and the Holy Spirit that was given to Stephen. And so he was held captive by these antagonistic religious leaders. And he gives this long speech in chapter 7, which inevitably leads him to be the first martyr in church history. And this speech is basically... The majority of chapter 7 until he is killed in chapter in verse 54. And what I want to do this morning is I want to kind of go over and summarize the first 29 verses. I know that that gives you a sigh of relief right there. You saw 43 verses. We're going to be here until 4 o'clock this afternoon, but that's not the case. Don't worry. So what I'll do is I'll go over the first 29 verses, and then I want to get to really what I think is the crux of the message, the heart of what Stephen is really after. So here's what happens. They seize Stephen and they began to threaten Stephen like his life is going to end if he continues to preach this gospel, but it does not slow him down. In fact, what he does is he turns the table against these religious leaders and he tells them, hey, you guys are doing what you've always done. And he's, what he's doing is he's describing unbelieving Israel. And so the first 29 verses is him, he starts with uh, Abraham and how God told Abraham, you're going to be the father of many nations. And that carries on to Joseph and his 12 brothers. And then it goes, oh, on into Moses. And he says, listen, all of these people, all of them that God has shown his wonderful, faithful love for have God has risen them up but you have rejected them and you're doing the same thing right now that's his point so as we see this in chapter 7 we're going to pick up in verse 30 now when 40 years had passed an angel appeared to him talking about Moses in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush when Moses saw it He was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. This is Stephen's speech. Remember that. Then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals from your feet. for The place where you're standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and they have heard their, and have heard their groaning. And I have come down to deliver them, and now I have, will send you to Egypt. Now, what happens here is Stephen's continually using this line of argument. God has been faithful to you, but you have been unfaithful to God. And then he gets to one of the most amazing scenes in all the Old Testament is when God kind of passes by Moses as he gives him this incredible statement that you will go and tell the most dangerous leader in the world to let your people go. And that's what happens. He uses this man who had already been rejected by Israel, according to what Stephen says in the prior verses, you will go up to the strongest, most powerful leader in the world, and you will tell him to let my people go. He's like, well, who should I tell him? sent me? I don't think burning bush is going to work. He says, I am. Tell him I am sent me. So he does. I am sent me. And it works. So what happens is all of these people are brought out of captivity to a promised land, but what the next statement that Stephen says, even through all of that, Even through all of that, you still reject God's truth. And this is what he says in verse 35. This Moses, the same one that heard from the burning bush, the same one that led God's people out of captivity, this Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you the ruler and judge. This man God sent as both a ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This Man let them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt, and the Red Sea, in the wilderness for 40 years. This is Moses, who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you, this is very important that you see this, a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel, who spoke to him at Mount Sinai with our fathers he received living oracles to give us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. So the whole reason while Stephen takes an entire chapter and gives this long speech is to make this statement that he just made. Just as you rejected Moses, you are doing the same thing to Jesus. And all you're doing, and he's talking to unbelieving Israel as a whole, this is who he's talking about. All you're doing is showing again the pattern of disbelief in God. Showing that you don't need God. You don't need the gospel. So Stephen's point is, Moses made a point that he was going to raise up a prophet just like me. And guess what? You rejected him too. And as a result, we see the idolatry that takes place. And that's what Stephen highlights here in verse 40. He says, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will, be, who will go before us. And as for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know that what has become of him. And they had made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to idols, and they were rejoicing in the works of their hands. What happens as a result of them rejecting God? They fall into idolatry, and they basically do whatever they want. So Stephen, as he's seeing the church being persecuted by these religious leaders, he's saying, yeah, I'm not surprised. I've seen it before. This is what you guys have always done, and you believe wholeheartedly that you have right standing before God because of who you are, but, but if God had really, uh, if you really knew God, God would have made a change in your life, and you would be different. You'd be different. And this is the way that Israel is described as a whole throughout the Old Testament. This is what you see. They're, they're mostly described as unbelief. As a whole, the nation of Israel, throughout Scripture, we're going to see over and over and over again, it's unbelief. Go read the book of Judges. We love you, we love you not. We love you, we love you not. But most of the time, it's unbelief. This is the way Paul describes it in Romans 11. He says it in verse 4. I have reserved myself 7,000 who have not bowed down to the knee knee to Baal. So too, at this present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And by grace, then, it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. What Paul is saying is, what made a believer in the Old Testament wasn't the law. It wasn't just being a Jew that made you a believer. It was grace. And he's saying, but even those who had that grace, he said there were 7,000 that would not bow down to Baal, 7,000 out of a Out of hundreds of thousand Jews, 7,000 would not bow down to Baal. That's a small, small number. And what Paul is saying is there's a remnant who did believe. And so Stephen's message is so important is because he's saying that they rejected Christ just like they rejected Moses. Because they were hearing God and they rejected God. And that is what a non-believer will do unless the Spirit of God is working on their life. A non-believer will continue to reject truth until God's grace interacts with their heart. And this is what you see, and this is why John says it this way in 1 John 3 verse 9. He says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. Does this mean that we're going to be perfect? Does this mean we'll never sin? No. John's point is, you will not practice sinning. You will not practice sinning if you're a true believer. And Stephen's point is, Israel, historically, you've just shown a practice of continual rebellion against God. How can you say you really love God if that's the case? You're not going to practice sinning. This is one of my favorite times of year for sports, um, which means I'm not a baseball fan, obviously. Um, But throughout March, I love March Madness, and then I like the NBA playoffs because I feel like that's when they actually start playing. Um, But I'm amazed at the how athletic some of these players are. I'm not amazed by the seven-foot guy who can dunk. That does not amaze me at all. That's like me bragging about dunking on my kid's rim over his you know, bedroom door. That, that's like, did you see what 360 I did? No, I'm like, I should do it. I just reach up and do it. Like, the seven-foot guy who dunks does not amaze me. The guys who amaze me are the guys who shoot the three-pointers. And they shoot them over people that are like six-foot-eight, six-foot-nine, on the fast break. They get a shot, boom, three-pointer. I, I can't imagine that. And I don't know if you know much about basketball. That's 22 feet away for the NBA three-pointer. I would love for us, just after the service, to go gather outside. There's a basketball go out there. 15 foot is a a free throw. Let's just try to shoot 10 in a row. It's very difficult. But these guys can do it all the time. Steph Curry is amazing. I don't know if you know that or not. You can tweet that. Steph Curry is amazing. I'm sure other people have tweeted that. But last year, they showed one of his routines, and he was going to shoot 100 three-pointers in a row. 100. How many can he make out of 100 threes? Well, he actually made 94 out of 100 three-pointers. And if you want to know how difficult it is, we'll meet outside and just try it. It's very, very difficult. Guess when he missed his first one? After number 77 is when he missed his first three-pointer. It's insane. Well, how do you do that? Well, you don't wake up with that gift. You practice. And as the ESPN analyst said over and over and over again, he practices the same rhythm and the same motion over and over and over again until he masters it, until he's almost, he can almost do it in his sleep. And my point is showing you this. Listen, if you are a genuine believer, you're not going to practice sinning, meaning you're not going to get better at sinning as a believer, you're going to stink at sinning over time. It's not going to be like, oh, I really enjoy this. I'm going to get better at it. I'm going to figure out new ways to lie. I'm going to figure out new ways to look at things on the computer and hide. It. I'm going to figure out new ways to you know, not be generous. I'm going to figure out new... No, you're not going to do that. If you are a believer, you're going to get better at loving God. You know why? The spirit of God lives in you and causes you to do that. doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. You're going to still sin. You're not going to be better at sinning. You're not going to become an expert at sinning. You're going to love and grow in your love for Jesus. And so Stephen is calling Israel out in this speech because he's showing them their pattern of disbelief, of unbelief. And this is a practice of sinning and rejecting the truth. But the problem was they didn't see it about themselves. Again, Israel believed that they were right before God because of who they were, but that was never the case. So the question is, how was somebody a believer in the Old Testament? Remember, this is before Jesus came, lived a perfect, sinless life, died on the cross, rose from the grave. How did you become a believer? Was it through the law? No. Was it through becoming an Israelite? No. The answer is they became a believer in the same way that we today become believers. They were granted a gift, and that gift is faith. And faith is given to you in spite of yourself. I want you to know that this morning. Faith is given to you in spite of yourself. And I always thought growing up that, God saved the good people, but the bad people, bad things happen to them. But that's not the gospel. I'd see it this way. I understood, like for instance, the story of Noah this way. Well, if you don't want to swim, be like Noah. He was the good guy, and that's why he didn't swim. So therefore, be a good guy so God doesn't punish you. But again, that's not how it worked. How did Noah believe? Well, Noah believed because it was credited to him, righteousness. And we made this like really romantic idea about Noah. We have him like in our nurseries, you know, on the wall. Like this is Noah's ark. And little kids play with the little, you know, two of each kind animal. And the little plastic ark with little compartments in it. And, but we forget that that's also when God killed like 99% of the world. Isn't that kind of weird? Like we have our kids play with toys that where God killed a bunch of people? That's odd to me. But that's what we do. But the point is not good person equals good things happen. And the point is good God, bad people, everyone. But God is so good that he saves just some out of a whole mess of people. And he gave Noah the gift of faith. Think about Abraham. How was Abraham? How did he believe? Seems like a good guy. But the scripture said he was old. He was good as dead couldn't have a child but God says I'm going to give you I'm going to make this covenant with you you're going to be the father of many nations in Genesis 15 verse 6 it says and Abram believed the Lord and accredited him as righteousness it was a gift that God said here's somebody that I'm going to display my grace to I'm going to give them this gift that is why Abram believed because it was a gift that was given to him. That is why Noah believed. That is why Moses believed. Paul says it this way in Romans 4, verse 1 through 3. He says, What shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefathers, according to the flesh? For Abraham was justified, for Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. But not before God, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Then if you dip down in verse 20 of chapter 4, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith, and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for, what's the word? Ours, also. It, was, it will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. What is Paul's point? Paul's point is exactly what I just said. How are people believers in the Old Testament? God gave them faith. How are we believers today? God gives us faith. And that's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful thing because us in and of ourselves could not obtain faith. Biblically speaking, there is none righteous, no, not one. Biblically speaking, according to what Paul says in the very next chapter in Romans 5, we, you and I, we're represented by Adam and we have the curse of sin. We're born in sin. But the grace of God, is what Paul says in Romans 5, is that he gives us Jesus. And so no longer are we represented by Adam. We're represented by Jesus because Jesus died in our place. And that's the gospel. And so Paul's point in Romans 4 and 5 is that faith was this gift of God, and it was this gift that he bestowed on anyone he wills. And we're given this gift of faith because Jesus died for us. And so we're believers today because Christ died for us. And all the believers who were believers in the Old Testament were based on the future promise that Christ would then die for them as well. And the reason... This is why this is important. The reason why this religious crowd that Stephen spends so much time arguing and debating with had so much problem with the gospel is because they didn't think they needed their sins to be forgiven. They thought that they were religious enough. And could that be us this morning? Could that be the challenge of preaching the gospel among southern Christian culture? I think so. I mean, I meet it all the time. I don't need that. I've, I've been, I grew up in church my whole life. How dare you confront me with the gospel? My grandma has enough religion for all of us. How dare you confront me with the gospel? And oftentimes what we will what we'll do is we'll begin to say, well, I'm not as bad as that person down the street. I'm not as bad as that person that sits over there. Oh, they took communion. Well, I know what they did last night. And we start to compare ourselves. Well, I'm not as bad as that person, so I must be right with God. No. That's not how we evaluate ourselves. We compare ourselves to Christ and our need for Christ. And so this is what happens next. Stephen is preaching this stern warning, reminding them of God's judgment On those who do not repent. And this is what he says in verse 41. And they made a calf. In those days. And offered a sacrifice to the idols. And were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But listen what it says. But God turned away. And gave them over to the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel. You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Now, here's the interesting thing about this passage. Stephen wraps up this speech with this idea where he quotes from Amos chapter 5. And Amos chapter 5 is interesting because that is when uh, the Israelites were telling God, God, would you please get rid of all the bad people? And what's the problem with that request? No one's gonna be here if you do that. And that's exactly what happens. This is what the beginning, before before it gets to the quote, the part where Stephen quotes amos 5 let me just read to you verses 18 to 24 he says this woe to you who desire the day of the lord why would you have the day of the lord it's darkness it's not light as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him i love that i want that on a car bumper sticker um Or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall, and a serpent bit him. It is not the day of the Lord, darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it. I hate and I despise your feast. I will take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offering and grain offering, I will not accept them. The peace offering of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. Can you imagine hearing that from God? Your songs get on my nerves. Okay, love. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I had to. <laughs> to the melody of your hearts, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. This is what he's saying. Be careful that you want judgment on all the bad people because you might be one of them. And what makes them that way is that they have never repented. And what he wanted from their hearts was repentance and belief and trusting the God who created them And so Stephen, he brings up this verse because he's saying, you're doing as you've always done, and you're looking at all the bad people out there like you're not one of them, but your heart has never really been transformed by the God who created you. And this is the reason Why the unbelieving Israelites had so much problems with the church is because the church actually saw, we saw genuine believers. You think about the apostles. These are just common everyday men. These were fishermen and now they're preaching these incredible sermons because God fills them with the spirit. You think about Stephen, for instance. He's a wonderful example. This is a simple guy that God saves and now he's radically transformed so much to where they can't withstand the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. What was so different about them? Their lives were changed by the gospel. And this is what Everybody hated about them. And so my point this morning that I want you to see is this. How do we not become religiously proud and arrogant like this crowd? We just have to remind ourselves of this grace that we see throughout the whole of Scripture that if you're a believer, it was accredited to you righteousness, which means this. Salvation belongs to the Lord. You and I didn't do anything to earn it. We actually don't do anything to keep it. That's the spirit of God who he puts in our lives. We have to remind ourselves this morning that salvation is this gift. And any time you say you did something to earn it or you act as if there is something that you can do to earn it. Or any time you act like there is a way that you can lose it or you act like there's something that you're doing that can keep you in the game. No, that cheapens Grace. And here's why I can say that this morning. Do you realize that when you became a believer in Christ, when you repented of your sins and you believed in the gospel, do you realize that when you recognize that Jesus died on the cross for you in your place, do you recognize that when he gives you a new heart that that was a supernatural transaction? You were dead, now you're alive in him, meaning you were not the same. You are given a new life. And so my fear is this. I don't want it to be where we have people in this room this morning who think, if you can become a Christian but your life does not have to change, you're still going to heaven. No. That's not the gospel. The gospel always leads to life change. So my question this morning is, are you changed by the gospel? I'm not asking you to look back and think about a time where you may have prayed a prayer. No. Look at your life now. Do you practice sinning or do you practice righteousness? Do you desire God's truth in your life? Or are you more like the Israelites and you think, I'm in because of who I am. I'm in because I'm better than the person next door to me. I'm in because I'm better than the person that's sitting across the church service this morning. Or are you comparing yourself and evaluating yourself based on the gospel? So my hope is this morning that when we respond, as we sing, as we pray, as we take communion, we didn't wouldn't go through the motions we would ask ourselves genuinely. Is my life transformed by the gospel? Am I a new creation? Or am I just going through a religious practice that I've always done? Let, let us not be that church. Let's be a church that marvels at the grace that God has given us, that marvels at the grace that says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What a gift. What a savior we have this morning. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for the grace that you've given us through your son, Jesus Christ, and that while we were yet sinners, You sent your son to die in our place. So God, I pray for right now in this room, maybe some people who are just going through the religious motions. Maybe they're banking on a early conversion story, but their life has never been transformed by the gospel. So Lord, would you help them to now evaluate their heart and to cry out to you and ask you by your spirit to grant them the gift of faith, the same faith that you gave Abraham, Noah, the same faith that you gave Moses, the same faith that you gave the early apostles and to Stephen, to those who were part of the early church who were genuinely believers, would you give them that faith this morning? Because we believe this morning that you are still alive today and that you still change lives. And so God, would you help those in this room who perhaps they don't see life change, but to cause them to repent of their sins and believe in the gospel this morning. And Lord, for those in this room who we do believe in the gospel, we do see life change, we do see regeneration and a new life, but Lord, help us to not fall back into the religious mindset of it's something that we do. It's not. It's something that has already been done for us on the cross. So Lord, would you help us to marvel the wonderful, wonderful, good news of the gospel that and yet while we were yet sinners, you died for us. in Jesus, good name, Amen.